Psalm 102. I have really been in a dilemma on how to proceed with this psalm, and I have decided to proceed in this direction. And the direction is, we're going to read verses 12 through 17. But the direction is, is that I need to do some um, legwork before we proceed on in this section. Uh, without this legwork, uh, we may not get the richest blessing out of this. Some of it may be a little technical. I'll try not to make it technical, uh, but you may want to make some notations there in your Bible as we uh, go through and uh, we look at this so that it won't be tonight that I'll finish all the groundwork, but Lord willing, after next Wednesday night, we'll have all the groundwork necessary for us just to start proceeding down through the passage here. <clears throat> so let's read this great psalm. Psalm 102, verse 12. But you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her. For the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in His glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. Now we've noted as we look at these preliminary considerations that are here in this text, we have already noted that this psalm has messianic overtones, doesn't it? And that is absolutely critical for us uh, really understanding the nature of this psalm. And we saw, if you look at Psalm 102, just the title of the psalm, and you'll see, at least in our version, it has the prayer of an afflicted man for mercy on himself. And then that title is not inspired, but the subscription is a prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. And so we asked ourselves when we started this study on Psalm 102, who is the one speaking? And what we found out is, from Psalm 102, is that it is the afflicted one that is speaking. However, our New Testament gives us additional help when we come to look at who is offering up this prayer request. Who is the one speaking? And I want us to turn to the book of Hebrews and just recover that. Hebrews chapter 1. When we see here that verses 25 through verse 27 are actually quoted in this book. And we saw in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, and the scripture says, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, 
And like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment that will also be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. And those verses that I just read there are from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And what we learned here is who is the one speaking. And we saw, if you look up here in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, it says, but of the Son, He what? He says. So this is God the Father speaking to the incarnate Son, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those words that are given to us in Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12, are the words that God the Father has spoken to the incarnate Son. We also noted in verse 12 of Hebrews 1 that the little phrase, but you are the same, is paraphrased at the end of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, and in verse 8, when the writer says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and how long? And forever. So he's quoting that little segment. He's paraphrasing that little segment. And he is saying, in saying that, who is the incarnate Son? Well, in Hebrews chapter 1, if that was all that you read, but of the Son, he says, you would say, well, this is God speaking to the Son. But in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, he tells us by name who the Son is. His name is what? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we go back to Psalm 102, and we look at verses 25 through 27 of that psalm, you ought to have written somewhere in those verses that this is God the Father speaking to the incarnate Son. That way, whenever you read down through the book of Psalms and you come to Psalm 102, that's going to stick out to you so that you can gather that information and have a proper understanding. And what I did in verse 25, I wrote right up above the word you, I wrote Son of God. Okay, so that lets me know right off the bat. So, if we asked ourselves, who is the speaker in Psalm 102? Who is saying, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you? Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. If I say, all right, who's who's praying that prayer? Well, the answer is, it's the incarnate Son. And what the Incarnate Son is concerned about is being cut off. And we saw that here at the end. Look at verses 23 and 24. He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, who's the I? The Incarnate Son. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. And then in verse 25, God the Father answers that prayer request in saying, now look, the earth may perish and the heavens will go away 
And they're all going to wear out like a garment. And they even are going to be changed to a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 27, but you are the what? You are the same. The incarnate Son. You are the same. He's going to abide how long? Forever. Okay, so there you get the context of that. So what we know is, is that the afflicted one is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord, the incarnate Son. And we saw his description on why his prayer for help, he's asking, would enter into the ears of God and that God would look upon him and answer him without delay. Verses 3 through 11. My days had been consumed in smoke and my bones had been scorched like a hearth. And we saw previously that that refers to what offering? The burnt offering. You ought to write that out beside that passage. That the word hearth is the same Hebrew term that is used for the hearth that is on top of the altar. He's saying, my days have been a burnt offering. And then verse 4, his heart had been smitten, had withered away. Verse 5, he's groaning, his bones cling to his flesh. He resembles an unclean animal, verse 6. He can't go to sleep, verse 7. I lie awake, I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. This is his physical condition. His sorrow, he's a man of sorrows, isn't he? And he knows grief. It affected his body. And not only was that affecting his body, but if you look at verse 8, his enemies reproached him all day long. And we pointed out that there's a strong possibility that in every other place the word day is used, it refers to all his days, but in verse 8 it refers to a singular day. And what day did we determine that was? It was the day of Calvary. And the New Testament brings out the mocking and the taunts and the reproaches that his enemies latched onto him while he was unmercifully being murdered for no reason, but it was for our sins. And so you have his enemies that are there. And we noted in verse 10, that all of this had come upon him because of God's indignation and God's wrath. That God had lifted him up and done what with him? Cast him him away. And folks, I may mention that the commentators almost universally, at least the ones that I looked at, all say that this is referring to the sin of the one of the afflicted one. But if this is the Lord offering this prayer, and I do believe it is, then it can't be His sin, right? Because He was sinless. Well, for what sin has God's wrath and indignation? He's making a declaration on why this is happening. It has to be for someone else's sin. For our sins. And that really just goes to the heart of us, doesn't it? That when you see the things that came upon the man of sorrows, and he still walked with the Lord, didn't he? 
He still obeyed Him. You and I, what would we have done? We would have departed from the path. Not Him. In spite of, verse 23, God weakening His strength as He walked in the way of the Lord, in spite of the fact that God the Father had shortened His days, He is still rock solid. He's going to walk in the way of the Lord. And folks, we made this understanding that if things get difficult in our life, and they do get difficult, and it appears as if God's wrath is coming on you. It appears as if everything's against you. And even fellow believers, like Job's friends, may be saying to you, well, this is what you deserve. Just remember that our Savior experienced all that and more. So we can go to Him in our time of need, right? He's touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. Folks, He knows we're weak. He knows we're sinful people. And yet He gave His life for us. Surely, that is a depth of love that is worth meditating on. That God showed us, He commended His love toward us while we were yet what? Christ died for us. Hallelujah for that. And that brings us down to verses 12 through 17. And we note kind of an, a, an abrupt shift of emphasis here. He's asking the Lord to answer his prayer, <clears throat> and I sincerely doubt that you and I would have made the same abrupt change of subject. Because now, instead of concentrating on himself, he turns his mind to who? the Lord, God the Father. Verse 12, But you, O Lord. He's in danger of his days being shortened. He's in danger of being taken away in the midst of his days. All of this is coming upon him unjustly, the just dying for the unjust. And he turns his mind to God. And what he's going to give to us in verse 12 is a great truth that we need. And you may just want, in my notes, I have outside of verse 12, truth underlined. Here's the truth. But you, O Lord, abide how long? He's concerned about being cut off, right? He's concerned about dying. But in contrast to humanity, God abides forever. And your name to all generations. Folks, you and I will be doing good if our name is um, on the lips of someone in our family for one generation. (laughs) But God's name is throughout all generations. He abides how long? Forever. Now there's the truth that the incarnate Son wants us to understand because that's His hope. 
Then in verses 13 through 14, based on that truth, he's going to make a declaration and I believe three reasons that God is doing this. Here's what he's going to declare. You will arise and have compassion on Zion. Everybody see that? Isn't that an unusual request? When he's been kind of self-focused about his situation, and all of a sudden, what's he concerned about? Zion. Okay. And then we see what I believe are reasons. Now, I'm going to tell you this. Prepositions are notoriously hard to translate. But I think that there's good reason, at least in my mind, that he's going to give us three reasons why God the Father is going to arise and have compassion on Zion. Look at the first one. For. Everybody see the word for there? Okay, I got a, I got a little word because. For it is time to be gracious to her. Everybody see that? That's one reason. why the eternal Lord is going to arise and have compassion on Zion. Number one reason, it's time to show, to be gracious to her. Second reason, for, and I got the word because above that word for, for the appointed time has what? Isn't that interesting? He's praying and he's under affliction, yes? And he's thinking about God the Father, that he is the eternal God. All right, he's going to arise and have compassion on Zion. Why? It is time. It is the appointed time. And then you see in verse 14, you see the word surely in the New American Standard? Okay. That is the same Hebrew prefix as the previous two phrases. So I have above the word surely, which is a valid translation, but I have above that word because. So I see three reasons why God would arise and have compassion on Zion. It's time, it's the appointed time, and God's servants are doing something. They find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. Everybody see that? Okay. So if, you, if, you, if you're just following along, you want to make sure you can put all these building blocks together and kind of hold them in your mind. I got the first four in verse 13, because. The second four, because. Verse 14, because your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. Okay, everybody see that? Okay, so we got the eternal God. Verse 13, God the Father is going to arise and have compassion on Zion. Three reasons. Now verse 15. In the New American Standard, it's got the word so. Everybody see that? Okay, if you look in the margin, it will say literally the word and. And that's the word, that's how I would translate that. And the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. 
Okay. So, do we have an eternal God? Yes. What's He going to do? He's going to arise, and He's going to have compassion on Zion, right? And, whatever He does there, and the nations, the Gentiles, will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. Everybody see that? Okay. Then he's going to give a reason. Verse 16. Four. Here's why the Goyim, the nations, the Gentiles will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. Because this is what's going to happen. The Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in His glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. Everybody see how that works there? You see the structure that is there. God is eternal. What's the first thing He's going to do? Arise and show compassion on Zion. What's the second thing that's going to happen? All the nations are going to fill the earth, uh, fear the Lord. Why? Because the Lord's going to build up what? Zion. Zion. Everybody see that? All right, here's the other thing that you may want to put out there. I told you to put out beside verse 12 the word truth. Verse 13 and 14, God arising and showing compassion on Zion is going to be illustrated in verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 19. Would you, would you consider this, in Psalm 102, would you consider this the Lord showing compassion? He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner to set free those who were doomed to death. Would you say that's compassion? Okay, so what we have here, we have Him rising up and showing compassion on Zion. He gives us three reasons why, and then He's going to tell us what that compassion looks like in Psalm 102, verses 19 and 20. So again, in verse 15, we have another thing the Lord is going to do. The nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. Well, what is that going to look like? Look at verses 21 and 22. He's going to set people free who are doomed to death, verse 21, that men may tell of the name of the Lord where? In Zion. And His praise in Jerusalem, when's it going to happen? When the peoples, everybody see that? When the peoples are gathered together and the who? Kingdoms, Kingdoms, plural, right? And the kingdoms, and what are they going to do? They're going to serve the Lord. Okay, everybody see that? And folks, we, we need to understand that these peoples, which are going to be Jew and Gentile, these peoples that are going to come together have to be created. 
Look at verse 18. <clears throat> this will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be what? Created. Created may praise the Lord. Everybody see all that structure? Okay, You may have to look back at it. You may have to go through it. We'll go through it again, Lord willing, next Wednesday. But there's your structure that is there. Would you not agree that's rich? That is a rich structure. Would you not agree it helps us to understand what the afflicted one is concerned about? Is he a person of sorrow? Yes, yes but his overwhelming aim and concern is beyond him. It's this thing called Zion that God is going to show compassion to her and in doing that, all the kings of the earth and all the peoples, all the Gentile peoples are going to receive a benefit from this. Did that happen? It did happen, did it not? In Christ Himself. And what a blessing, what a blessing that is. And folks, I'm just going to say it, it has taken me weeks to really weed through all this. So if you say to yourself, I'm not quite sure I see it with as great a clarity as you do. Well, I understand that. I've been looking at this passage for a while. But it would do your heart good <clears throat> to really pray and ask the Lord to give you clarity to see that structure so that every time you go through it, Every time you read through the Bible every year, you come to Psalm 102, or you're just reading through the Psalm several times in a year, you come to this Psalm, you can have a rich feeding as you look here upon the afflicted one. Now I want to do one other thing, and that is I want to ask this question. He mentions this word Zion several times, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. And he mentions Jerusalem. If you look at verse 21, <clears throat> that men may tell of the name of the Lord in this location, in Zion, and His praise at this location in Jerusalem. Everybody see that? So we, we got to pause and we got to think through, alright, what is this term Zion? And I want us to turn to the very first time it's used in your Bible. Turn to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 5. <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 5. <clears throat> David is going to be anointed king, not just of the southern kingdom, but over all of Israel. Not just Judea, but all the tribes of Israel. Beginning in verse 1 of this chapter, it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. 
David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned how many years? 40 years. Verse 5. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned how many years? 33 years. Now, I think this is a good passage just as a footnote to side that the Old Testament doesn't record dates like you and I might record dates. How long did he reign in Israel? 33 years. How long did he reign in Hebron? Seven years and... Alright, now add that together. This isn't difficult. That's 40 years and... But the Bible says he reigned 40 years. Now, we would say, did he reign 40 years? Or did he reign four and a half years? The answer to that is yes. He reigned 40 years because they just weren't as specific unless they just get specific under inspiration. They just weren't that specific whether they use inclusive dating like I do sometimes in January of next year. I'm 62. I will tell my wife I'm 63. Am I 63? My wife says, you are not 63. You are 62. And you will not be 63 until August. Is she right? (laughs) Answer, yes. Okay. But I would be equally justified biblically to say that I lived until I was 63 if I died in January. Because it's 62 in some months, right? And so, just to see that. But... Our point here, look at verse 6. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter in here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. Did you see that? There's the first mention of this word Zion. He captured the stronghold of Zion. All right, what is Zion according to verse 7? The city of David. Everybody see that? Okay, so if we, if we want to know <clears throat> what is Zion, we would say that it is the city of David. Now look at verse 9. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from Milo and inward. So whatever Zion is, it is the city of David, isn't it? He called it that. And evidently, it was some geographical location within the city of Jerusalem. So that the city of Jerusalem actually became, ended up becoming known also as the city of David. But when you talk about Zion, what we know here first mentioned in our Old Testament is that it is a geographical location and at this point it was occupied by what people? The Jebusites and David conquered it. Everybody see that? Now, there is another Zion in our Bible. There is a Zion that is a geographical location. 
And there is another Zion. And it's very important for us to recognize that. And where would we turn to to find that out? You would turn to the book of Hebrews. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And in the middle of that chapter, he's going to compare a covenant that came from Mount Sinai, that is the Mosaic covenant, with another covenant, and that is the new covenant that our Lord Himself ratified with His own blood. So in verse 18, he talks about Mount Zion. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not even bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses himself said, I am full of what? Fear and trembling. Moses appeared before God Himself. And yet, here he is seeing this awful sight at Mount Sinai and the giving of that Mosaic Law. He sees that and he is full of fear and trembling. Verse 22. But you have come. See the contrast? You have come to what mount? Everybody say that. You come to Mount Zion. Well, what mount is this? Well, it's Mount Zion, verse 22, and to the city of the living God. So we know, as far as David is concerned, and some of the other 158 references in our Old Testament, that some of those references refer to an earthly geographic area that David conquered, and he called it the city of David. And it was located within the precincts of what city? The city of Jerusalem. But the writer of Hebrews says, now there's another mount, Zion. And it is the city of the living God, it is the Jerusalem. What kind of Jerusalem? Heavenly. Heavenly. Not, not that which is on earth. But a heavenly Jerusalem. And he goes on and talks about the inhabitants of that city. God the Father is there. Wow. Jesus Christ is there. The spirits of righteous people are there. And what we find out is this. Look at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. He who is speaking, verse 25... 
For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them, what location? On earth. Much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns or is speaking from what location? Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? And folks, when you look at the other references in our New Testament, I'll just give them to you. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1, he talks about the Lamb being on Mount Zion. And if you really look at the context of that chapter, what you will find out is is that that Lamb that is on Mount Zion has 144,000 special individuals there. And that they learn a song that is only for them. And Revelation 14 says they were singing it before His throne. And then later on in the chapter it says and those voices were out of heaven. So we're in Revelation 14. Where's all this happening? It's on Mount Zion. What location? Heaven. In Romans chapter 11, verse 26, the passage itself is future. And Paul quotes that one day all of Israel will be saved. It's an amazing thing. A nation is going to be born in a day. And the passage says, <clears throat> the Deliverer will come from Zion to remove ungodliness from Jacob. Well, I think it's interesting if we ask that question. Where is the Deliverer today? Is He in Jerusalem on earth? No. The Deliverer is going to come from Mount Zion and He's going to land on that Mount of Olives and He is going to open up a fount to that nation, isn't He? Paul knows that Mount Zion is the heavenly one. In Romans chapter 9, verse 33, the Bible says that God is going to lay in Zion a stone. Ephesians 2.20 says that this stone, this cornerstone is Christ. And Peter tells us that believers are living stones. In other words, folks, something's being built up in heaven, isn't it? A temple. And He's the cornerstone, and we're the living stones. Where, does, where is Christ now? He's seated in heavenly places, isn't He? Then last reference, in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, it talks about something very interesting. The daughter of Zion. Does that, does that strike you 
as interesting. The daughter of Zion. And it also speaks of the daughter of Jerusalem. Folks, if I say this is someone's daughter, what am I saying? If I say, okay, this is Kelly's daughter, what am I saying? That Ellie has a daughter. <laughs> I'm saying that this daughter was born by who? Kelly. Kelly, right? That's simple. Something's going to be born out of Zion? The city of Jerusalem is going to give birth? Is that not interesting? Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king comes on the fold of a donkey. Right? And folks, Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 26, he speaks of the Jerusalem that is above. And he says, this Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother. She is our mother. Who's in that city? God the Father's there. God the Son's there. Spirits of just men made perfect are there. Abraham's looking for a city that has foundations whose foundations are not with human hands but built by God. And folks, when we look at this phrase Zion in Psalm 102, we have to ask ourselves, is this the earthly Zion? Is it the heavenly Zion? Or is it at times the earthly Zion and another time the heavenly Zion? We have to find out what Jerusalem and what Zion God is speaking of when we're there in Psalm 102. How do you like that for preliminary considerations before we ever go through those few verses? Let's go to our Lord in prayer and I'll let you ponder this upcoming week as you look at Psalm 102.